If you turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, we're in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5, our section tonight will be verses 8 to 14. It is in a bit of a larger context in terms of sanctification and holiness and the pursuit of those things that are pleasing to our God, but it's intimately connected with verses 3 to 7. But I want to read beginning in chapter 5 at verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love, as Christ also has loved us and given Himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, uh, let it not even be named among you, as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks." For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth finding out what is acceptable to the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret, but all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore he says, Awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Wives, submit to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this, your word. We pray now for the guidance and the power of the Holy Spirit as we seek to understand what the Apostle has for us. As well, God, we pray that you would enable us by the power of the Spirit and with a, a love for your law to do those things that are pleasing in your sight, not so that we might be saved, but because you have saved us freely by your grace and for your glory. 
We thank you for the finished work of the Savior on our behalf. We pray for cleansing now in that precious blood, and we ask through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, as we come to these practical sections in the Apostles' writings, we need to understand that Paul is not lecturing. Paul is not scolding, and neither are pastors that preach these passages. We're not here to say, you know what, you're messed up, and this is what you need to do. We never disconnect the practical sections of Holy Scripture from the doctrinal sections. Remember, Paul has been very explicit on how we've come to this place called salvation. It is based on the sovereign grace of God, according to Ephesians 1, 3, and 4. It is based on the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ, Ephesians 1 and verses 6 and 7. It is based on the finished work of the Holy Spirit, being that seal and guarantee of our, of our purchased possession. And it comes to us graciously. The instrument is faith by which we appropriate it, but it's all of God. And so the pattern in the New Testament, the pattern especially in Paul's letters, is do these things because God has saved you by his grace. It's a bit different than, well, it's a world different than scolding people or lecturing people on how they ought to perform. They ought to perform consistent with what God has done in terms of their life. But again, it's not lecturing and it's not scolding. It's the imperative that follows on the indicative. The indicative is the gospel. It is what Christ has accomplished for us. And on the heels of that, we have these practical admonitions on how we're to live. In fact, Paul summarizes it well, or sort of uh, encompasses this idea in chapter 4 at verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling, with which you were called. He says in uh, Philippians chapter 1, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. In other words, as conquered by grace sinners, you're to live in a manner that is consistent with the conqueror. In other words, you're seek, you seek to be godly and to imitate God, as he says here in chapter 5, verse 1. So in the larger section, verses uh, 3 to 14, we see this transition from darkness to light. Paul has been speaking in the categories of the new man and the old man. And that is not different, but it's just another way to come at it now that he's speaking from this transition from darkness to light. So last time we saw the description of the deeds of darkness in verses 3 to 7. You had the prohibition of the sins of the flesh in verses 3 and 4. Notice, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Those are actions that the blood-bought child of God is to resist. Those are actions that the blood-bought child of God is not to walk in. He's not to be a fornicator. He's not to be the, the kind of person that engages in uncleanness. He's not to engage in this sort of sexual covetousness or greediness. As well, he's to, supposed to tame his tongue. Notice in verse 4, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. These are all characteristic of those who are in darkness. This is the orientation for those who walk in darkness. And so Paul gives that prohibition, then he shows the consequences associated with the sins of the flesh in verse 5. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. 
And then he gives this exhortation to resist the sins of the flesh in verses 6 and 7. Well, he carries on in that vein in verses 8 to 14. And essentially what he does is he gives an exhortation to walk in the light in verses 8 to 10, and then he gives a prohibition against fellowship with darkness in verses 11 to 14. So walk in a particular way and avoid those things that would come into your path that are consistent with darkness. You need to be those who flee the darkness. You need to be those who thrive in and have your walk in the light as it is in God Most High. So let's look at the exhortation to walk in the light in verses 8 to 10. Notice he begins with a reminder. And this isn't the first time he's done this in this epistle. Notice what he says in verse 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Again, you have to see that pattern. He doesn't come out of the chute here and say, be holy, walk in the light, don't go near the darkness. He reminds them of what's occurred. He reminds them of the indicative. He reminds them that they once were darkness, but now they are in the light. And he does this because this is the basis upon which sanctification proceeds. Sanctification in Christianity isn't do this and earn this. Sanctification in Christianity is do this because Christ has purchased you. He has given you free justification. He has blessed you with every spiritual blessing, so let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. But as we look at this reminder, notice what he doesn't say. He does not say, you walked in darkness, but he says, you were darkness. The doctrine of total depravity is comprehensive. It's not just a little problem that we face on this side of heaven. It's not just a little little bit off the, the beaten path. He doesn't say you walked in it, but you were darkness. This characterized you. This was your nature. This is how you conducted yourself. Notice the previous references to that state. Back in chapter 2 at verse 1. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. When anybody ever tries to minimize sin, it gives evidence that they have no understanding whatsoever of who God is and of what his law says and what the New Testament epistles declare to us unequivocally about the problem of sin. When you look out at the world, when you look in at the church, when you look at your own heart, Yeah, we have a lot of problems. We might have economic problems. We might have societal problems. We might have problems with our civil government. We might have problems from, you know, a whole host of things. But what's ultimately the biggest problem? The biggest problem in the world today is sin. It's depravity. It's rebellion against God. It's a a lawlessness relative to the Decalogue. It is a jettisoning of the, the, the rule and law of God, and it is every man doing what is right in his own eyes. Remember the book of Judges? That's kind of how the book ends. I think the book ends as sort of a, an epilogue, but I think it describes what actually was the case before the Judges. So I think 17 to 21 in the book of Judges, in, time, in, in terms of chronology, are actually preceding chapters 1 to 16. Now, I don't want to confuse anybody here, but I think the, the overarching concern is mentioned by the author of Judges, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This uh, autonomy and this independence and this desire to, to cast off the fetters of God, 
is not the sign of liberation. It's not the sign of a people that have evolved. It's the sign of degradation. It is the sign of depravity. It is the sign of our rebellion against and our running from God. And so when the apostle treats this, he pulls no punches. He says, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. Look at chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. Now notice how he describes them in verse 18. Having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. Sounds like the morning newspaper. Sounds like the opening page on whatever browser you have and whatever news agency you look at. When you look at that sort of thing, you are reminded of what Paul says here in terms of describing humanity that is estranged from God Almighty. You once were darkness, he says to the people of God in Ephesus. But notice back in 5.8, but now you are light in the Lord. But now you are light in the Lord. Again, not the first time he's done that contrast. So chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, here's the before picture. But then verse 4 to 10, but God. God who is rich in grace, God who is rich in mercy, with the great love wherewith he loved us, made us alive together with Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. So there is this contrast. He does the same thing with the Gentiles, dropping down in chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. Here's what the Gentiles were prior to coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he even uses that language. But now you who were afar off have, have been brought nigh. So this contrast, by way of reminder, is helpful for the people of God. You should appreciate the argument here. This is once what you once were. These deeds are associated with, once you, with what you once were. You're not that anymore. So ergo, don't do those deeds anymore. It's a pretty simple argument. If fornication and uncleanness and covetousness are associated with darkness, and you were once darkness and you did those things, you stop doing those things now because you're no longer darkness. And that's precisely the argument here in 4.8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. The source of the believer's light is in the Lord. As one commentator said, they are not referred to as the light in essence, but through participation. Who is the light? Well, God the Father is light, according to 1 John 1, 5. God the Son is light, according to John's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 4 to 9. As well, chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Chapter 9, verse 5, I am the light of the world. Yet, not two lights, one light, one divine light. So the believer participates in what God has done. So if darkness is ultimately connected to sin and to Satan, and we were that at one time, we're no longer that at one time, so now you're supposed to walk in the light. And that's what he goes on to say. 
For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So the positive exhortation comes, walk as children of light. This is a wonderful statement in the context because he's dealing with walking. You walk in love, 5.2. You walk in light, 5.8. And you walk in wisdom, 5.15. And that all connected to 4.1. That your walk is supposed to be worthy of the gospel of your calling. So you see the argument from the apostle is based on the cross. Jesus has saved you by grace through faith. Now this is the way you're supposed to conduct yourself. In the former section, he was using the category of new man and old man. In this section, he's using the category of darkness and of light. So the emphasis on, uh, in the book on walking is the orientation of one's life. The old King James has it as conversation. Not necessarily bad, but a bit antiquated in terms of the way we understand conversation now. And this is the manifestation of one's imitation of the Most High. Turn back to Matthew's Gospel in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Again, we are not light by nature, but we are light by participation. Our union with Christ brings that light to bear in our hearts and enables us to function as light in a godless world. Notice in Matthew 5 at verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. See, I don't think Jesus means go out and announce how great you are. Go tell everybody how lightful you are. Go tell everybody what an illuminating person you are. No, do what you're supposed to do in a manner that when persons see it, they don't go, what a great guy. They say, wow, he serves a great God. Let your light so shine that men may see your good works and give glory to God. You know what the best way to fumble on good works is? It's to boast about them. I'm so awesome. I do so many good things. I'm like that Pharisee in Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 18. I, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like other men. I thank you, Lord, that I'm not an adulterer. I'm not an extortioner. I'm not like this publican here. I, I pray, you know, many times a week. I fast. I, I give tithes. I, I do. That's the best way to mess up your good works, brethren. That's the best way to mitigate against it. Rather, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to God Most High. Turn over to the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians, chapter 2. So notice what he says. He says, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Philippians chapter 2, specifically at verse 14. A passage that probably should be preached on a semi-annual basis or semi-monthly basis in most churches today. Verse 14. Do... Do all things without complaining and disputing. That one hits hard, doesn't it? Do all things without complaining and disputing? Really, Paul? Are, are you kidding me? Do you, do you know how hard that is? That is an imperative from God Most High through His inspired apostle. Do all things without complaining and disputing. Notice what he goes on to say. That you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I, may not, uh, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. 
And then notice as well, with reference to this same theme, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So we are light in the Lord, and therefore we are to walk as children of light. Notice in 1 Thessalonians 5, 5. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night, uh, nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. And then notice in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, he says essentially the same thing. Verse 9, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. So back to our passage in Ephesians 5.8, uh, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And then he says, walk as children of light. And then he explains that in a bit more detail, specifically in verses 9 and 10. And notice what he says in verse 9 parenthetically. He describes what it means to walk in the light. He doesn't leave that up for the guesser. Well, what does that mean? You scratch your head, and well, it means to me... He's not into that. He's, Paul doesn't have Bible studies where he asks you, what does this text mean to you? Paul tells you what the text means. Paul tells you what his emphasis is. Paul does not leave us guessing. And Paul, obviously, under the inspiration of the Spirit, Spirit, uh, uh, the, 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 the Lord God Most High, in the giving of his law, does not leave it up to guesswork. Well, what, what should I do in terms of a pattern of sanctification? I think I've told you behind the scenes in Ephesians 5 and 6, well, 4 to 6 is the Decalogue. It's the Ten Commandments. There's no new law, brand new, sort of a paradigm for the people of God. No, now that we're blood-bought and now that we have the Holy Spirit, we say with David, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation day and night. The law of God's not bad. The law of God is good if one uses it lawfully. And in this context, we use it as a pattern for sanctification. That is a good use. So notice how he describes light, for the fruit of the Spirit, or there's a variant there, for the fruit of the light is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. The cultivation of these fruits is an imperative for us. Walk as children of light. That means pursue goodness, righteousness, and truth. Get it? Pretty simple argument. This is what characterizes the darkness fornication, uncleanness, and covetousness. Avoid that. And you can because you were once that, but now you're not. You've been called out of that darkness into marvelous light, so now the particular marching orders have changed. Instead of fornication and uncleanness and covetousness, and that's just a representative brief list. You can encompass all other sin in there, but in its stead or in its place, this triad of virtue is to characterize your walk in the light, the goodness and righteousness and truth. The pursuit of goodness is that which is contrary to the deeds and words of verses 3 and 4. The pursuit of righteousness, which is consistent with those who are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. The pursuit of righteousness, which is the consequence of having been justified by faith in Jesus Christ. And the pursuit of truth, which is consistent with the Lord God of truth. So you see, Paul does not leave it undefined. Here's what it looks like to walk in the light. You're about goodness, you're about righteousness, and you're about truth. 
One commentator sort of summarizes it this way. Goodness refers to the heart, justice or righteousness to one's action, and truth to the tongue. So he says to pursue those fruits, and in doing so, as you're walking in the light, notice what verse 10 says, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. That's intriguing. I think it's similar to what you see in Romans chapter 12. You can turn there, Romans 12, specifically at verses 1 and 2. Romans chapter one, uh, 12, verses 1 and 2. This is where Paul gets practical after having explained the doctrine of the gospel. In chapter 12, verse 1, he says, I be beseech you therefore, brethren. So based on all that I've said in terms of the universal depravity of all men, justification by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, all that I've said concerning imputation, all that I've said concerning sanctification, all that I've said concerning sovereign election and predestination and God's grace, now I've come to, to apply this. For those of you who are in Christ, those of you who are the recipients of these blessings, he says in 12.1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Makes sense, right? Reasonable service. You've been saved by grace. Christ shed his blood for you. Christ rose again for you. Christ lived for you. It is reasonable for you to present yourselves or present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Notice in verse 2, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So going back to chapter 5, specifically at verse 10, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. I don't think he means you're on this quest to peer into the mind of the infinite God and determine what it is that pleases him. I don't think that's what it means at all. In fact, drop down to verse 17. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord, understanding what the will of the Lord is, simply means to know the Scriptures. It means to know the truth of God's holy word. It's not a mystical experience. It's not an emotional experience. It's not some sort of thing where you just sort of tune out and tune in and God will speak to you directly. No, you find out what is acceptable to the Lord by searching the holy scriptures. Isn't that the marching orders for the children of light? If we are called to walk in the light and to conduct ourselves in the light, well, there is a whole book designed on how to educate people in that particular venture. And so the apostle says, cultivate or pursue these fruits and discern what God's will is. So that's the exhortation to walk in the light, verses 8 to 10. Then notice the prohibition against fellowship with darkness in verses 11 to 14. Notice the specific command, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. It makes perfect sense. Right? It, it, it's so obvious what he's doing here. I don't want you to keep fornicating. I don't want you to keep engaged in uncleanness. You're new men in Christ Jesus. The old man has died. You're no longer in that darkness, but now you are the light. You are children of the light in the Lord, and therefore you're supposed to walk in the, in the light. You're supposed to pursue these fruits. You're supposed to discern what the will of God is by searching the scriptures. And he says here, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Now, brethren, as we compare Scripture with Scripture, I don't think he means that we don't have friends who happen to be sinners. 
well, I, I can't have any non-Christian friends. I mean, they're, they're wicked. They're horrible. They're, they're vile and detestable. That's not what he means. When we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the emphasis is, I think Warfield gets at it, it's not association with the world that's condemned. It is compromise with the worldly. That's the point that the apostle is highlighting in his various epistles. So, so if your next door neighbor is a pagan or a heathen, you don't you know, drive out and don't look at him because he, he engages in the unfruitful works of darkness. I, I can't talk to you. You know, you're in the backyard watering and your neighbor's over there and he's, hey, how's it going? I can't talk to you. I can't have any fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Brethren, that is to take it too far. That is absolutely, positively, not what we're enjoined upon here by Paul. We're not to participate in it. This is what fellowship means. It's participation in the works of darkness. It's a very clear and obvious statement. The idea is participation. Do not participate in the unfruitful works of darkness. If we ask, what are the unfruitful works of darkness? Well, probably the sins condemned in verses 3 and 4, the sins that are opposed to goodness, righteousness, and truth, the sins that are exposed by the Decalogue, uh, Romans 3.20, therefore by the deeds of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. If those things are contrary to the Decalogue, those are things we're not to participate in. And then the sins that are contrary to the uh, fellowship with God. So back to the text. Verse 11b is probably the tough part in this passage. It's been pretty cut and dry thus far. I know it's hot. I know it's late. I know that sleep is nigh. But follow with me here. Because this expose them thing is a bit difficult. I don't know that I can explain it sufficiently. I think I know what it's not. I think there are extremes. Well, let's just get it before us there in verse 12, uh, or verse 11. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. But rather expose them. Now, again, I think if we put extremes on either side, that doesn't mean we're going to exactly fall into the right path but hopefully we'll avoid the extremes. There's a group called the Westboro Baptist Church in, I think, Topeka, Kansas. They would be on the far extreme of what I don't think Paul means at all. And I don't even want to give you their website because he says it's shameful to talk about what they do. And this is even in secret. It's their actual URL. If you want to know later, ask me. I don't want to say it in front of the little kids because that'll provoke or evoke questions at home. What, what means this or what is that? But there's a group, Westboro Baptist Church. Again, I'm not suggesting go look at everything they write and do and all that. But I would suggest they go hog wild on this aspect of exposing the, the wickedness. But the other extreme is that we don't do this at all that we're just those mealy-mouthed, limp-wristed, spineless jellyfish Christians that sort of prance around through life without ever being dogmatic on the sins of our age. So, so on the one hand, don't be Westboro Baptist. Don't send them this sermon either because I don't want to fight or hear about it or get nasty emails or have them pick it outside our church because they do. That's what they do. They stand outside churches and cemeteries and wherever people that have any degree of joy might gather and just try to rain all over their parade. 
So, so please, keep this away from them. I, I mean, I guess I'd have to if you do it. I'm not going to, I can't forbid you. But, but on the other hand, this, this mindset that I think is pretty symptomatic of much of Christianity today, we, we don't ever want to violate, you know, we don't ever want to hurt anybody's feelings. We, we don't ever want to denounce sin. I mean, come on, we're not in that business. We're not, we're not supposed to be that guy. I mean, look at Westboro Baptist Church. Well, there's a far cry, uh, you know, far expanse between Westboro Baptist Church and sort of a normal approach to whatever Paul means here in verse 11. Rather, expose them. Now, the verb that he uses here is a verb that's translated in various ways in the New Testament. It can be translated rebuke. It can be translated reprove. It can be translated as convict. Here it's translated as exposed. You kind of see how that semantic range or the meaning of the word does have all that, that aspect to it. And there is in Scripture, I think, an emphasis on a twofold approach. There's the obvious verbal reproof, the obvious verbal rebuke. Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go to him. And if he hears you, you've won your brother. Rebuke him. Reprove him for his sin. In Luke 3, we read that, that John the Baptist rebuked Herod because Herod had his brother's wife. He did that verbally. He did that audibly so that Herod would hear and so that Herod would repent. As well, you have 2 Timothy chapter 4. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. So certainly there is an element wherein we expose the deeds of darkness by verbal uh, 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 means. But as, not but, as well, turn to Acts 26. I think it's important for us, wherever we fall in this continuum, and I'm hoping that we don't fall to Westboro Baptist, and I'm hoping we don't fall to the, you know, invertebrate that, that doesn't have any backbone in, in terms of, you know, standing up to the sins of our particular age. Notice that it's not just to expose them to, you know, sort of beat up on them. There is a remedial effect. You expose them, why? Why does the Baptist expose? Why does the Baptist rebuke? Why does the, the Baptist reprove Herod? Well, probably because the Baptist wants Herod to repent and believe the gospel. So you see, it's not just exposing them to expose them, though in some contexts that's necessary as well. If you haven't looked outside the church today, and if you haven't looked inside some churches today, there's some problems going on. There needs to be a bit of exposure. There needs to be a bit of conviction. There needs to be a bit of rebuke. There needs to be a bit of reproof, but for a remedial end. Not just so we can spike the ball and say, our church is better than your church. No, not at all. We want all churches of Christ to be faithful. We want sinners in this world that are for child mutilation to repent and believe the gospel. We want sinners in this world that are for abortion on demand and euthanasia to repent and believe the gospel. We want politicians that see overreach and, and tyranny as their, their model government to repent and believe the gospel. 
Notice what Paul says in Acts 26, specifically at verse 17. He's giving his, uh, uh, the account of his conversion, and he says, I will, he's speaking of what Jesus communicated to him, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So you see, even this verbal approach does not have as its intention just to expose their wickedness, just to convict them of their wickedness, but to set the stage for the proclamation of the gospel. In other words, Luther was right. In other words, the Reformed tradition was right. We need the law to expose the sinner so that the sinner sees his need for the Savior. It's a wonderful arrangement. Isn't it great that God's given a tool to show sinners their need, and then he has provided his son to remedy that particular need? So the exposure comes verbally when we preach God's law. But there's also a nonverbal reproof that can occur as well. Turn back to John's gospel in John chapter 3. John chapter 3. I don't know how prone any of us are to being this holy, but, you know, at least it's on the table. Notice in 319 in John's gospel. And this is the condemnation. Now, the primary referent is to Jesus, of course. This is the condemnation that the light has come into the world. This is Jesus. And men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. So non-verbally, if we just live the way God's called us to live, if we're just faithful in terms of being light bearers, then hopefully that has an ameliorating effect upon the godless around us. Again, it may be a, a, a stretch, but nevertheless, it's there. Philippians 2, shine as lights in a crooked and perverse generation, holding forth the word of truth. And then one other text. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, specifically at verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, not by standing with a picket sign outside of somebody's house telling them they're on their way to hell, Now, if God leads you that way, call me and let's talk, and perhaps that's the way it is, but perhaps it's not. But notice what he says in verse 15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. So back to Ephesians 5.11, but rather expose them. Probably here you're going to say, so what does it mean? I don't know. (laughs) It can't mean the Westboro folk, but it can't mean the spineless jellyfish folk either. I would give at least a suggestion here. I would suggest that the use of the law to expose the lawlessness in the world. The use of the law to expose the lawlessness in the world. Now, this is all qualified by Paul. That there's wretched things going on on in the world is true and needs to be pointed out. But the specifics behind that wretchedness 
doesn't belong in the Christian pulpit. I think that's what Paul goes on to say in verse 12. For it is shameful to even, or even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. So generally speaking, you've probably seen the great push on having drag queen story time in public libraries. I doubt that means that they're that good of readers. I don't think that's what's driving it. I think it is perversion. I think it is lawlessness and wickedness. But to get into the specificity of what goes on in one of those things, again, you can read about it, you can see it for yourself in other venues, but in the pulpit, it's shameful to speak about those particular things. So you see the general warning, that kind of stuff is happening, but to get into the specific details is not the task of the pulpit or the task of the preacher. As well, I would say the use of the law to expose the corruption in the church. The use of the law to expose the corruption in the church. And again, brethren, we have to take some long, hard looks, not just at the world, but at the church as well. Where are we coming short? Are we passing or allowing the sorts of things that are going on unchecked in society into the church? Are we baptizing lawlessness and baptizing godlessness and baptizing those things that are contrary to to the light? And then the use of the law ultimately to correct the people of God. 2 Timothy 4.2, convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. Look at Titus 2. The verb is used there as well in Titus 2.15. Titus 2.15, after a very, very powerful statement concerning the duties of people in the life of the church, founded upon the theological basis of Christ and his redemptive work, notice what Paul says in 2.15. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Now that verb despise, it's kind of misleading here. Let no one hate you? No, I don't think that's it. It's more like, let no one disregard you. In other words, preach the law of God, preach the word of God with teeth. That's the way it's supposed to be preached. Don't offer it up as suggestions. The Decalogue isn't ten suggestions. It's not ten recommendations. It's not ten good ideas. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not have uh, uh, other gods. You shall not make for yourself an idol. Those things are supposed to be preached in such a way that persons are not to disregard it. In other words, spiritually speaking, shove it down their throats because it's the law of God most high. So please forgive me if I can't explain what all that means in terms of expose. I struggle with some of this stuff as well, but hopefully these at least get us in the ballpark. Notice the explanation. He speaks of the shame involved in verse 12. For, the, for it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. So on the one hand, expose them, but on the other hand, don't expose every detail. Don't expose them in such a way that the people of God in the church of God have their minds starting to be a, sort of lured away with reference to godlessness, God, you know, wretchedness. Don't do that. There's got to be a, 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 a balance. There's got to be a qualifier here. There's got to be a way that you can do it generally, but not with the specificity. So the exposure of such sins, verse 11, must not be a detailed description of such sins. And then notice this great encouragement. And I think we need this encouragement in verse 13, because we look at this world, we look at the rise of false religion, we look at the rise of of atheism, we look at the rise of communism, we look at the the rise of of all this stuff that is anti-Christian, and we forget 
that Christ is on the throne, that Christ is building his church, that the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it, that he must reign till all of his enemies are made his footstool. We forget that there are nations where lots of people are coming to the Savior. Just because we're not witnessing it in Canada, just because we don't see it in our own neighborhood, doesn't mean that the nations of the earth are in the darkness they once were. No, the missionary enterprise continues. The evangelistic enterprise continues. Christ is victor. Christ is triumphant. Christ is building his church. And I think that's the emphasis there in verse 13. You're going to win. Verse 13, but all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. It's a blessed encouragement to the people of God. So have no participation in these unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Shine the light of God's law and gospel upon them. Shine the light of God's uh, uh, law and gospel on a godless world and on a godless church, and God Most High will take care of the rest. Christ is the one in charge. We have the promise of the triumph of truth. We have the promise of the subjugation of error. We have the promise of the exposure of the unbelieving sinner. We have the promise, ultimately, of the victory of Christ. That's how verse 13 functions. So if you, church, are doing what you, church, are supposed to do in terms of exposing instead of participating, you see, those are contrasts. Not only not participate, but you should actually expose them. And if you do that, you have the sure promise of God Most High that Christ will take care of the rest. We use the means, we do what we're called to do, and we trust in Jesus to bless. And then this last bit assures us that it's Christ who is over this. And this is an interesting statement in verse 14. Some suggest that it's a Christian hymn. Others suggest that it's an Old Testament quotation. The problem is, is that there's no Old Testament quote that sounds exactly like that. So which is it? Well, the fact that he says in verse 14, therefore he says, and that's an interpretative call, he, I think it's a reference to God. It's not he, the hymn writer of verse 14, it's he, God. This is kind of a formulaic phrase that's employed by apostles to cite Old Testament scripture. It's likely a conflation. That means the bringing together of two or more texts into one compound statement. And at least the commentators I read suggest two primarily, but there may be two more in the book of Isaiah. But in Isaiah 60 at verse 1, it says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. Isaiah 26, 19, your dead shall live. Together with my dead body, they shall arise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in dust, for your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. I think that's a pretty good guess, if anything. So how does it function in the context here? Well, obviously, it functions in terms of the sinner. It says to uh, awake, you who sleep. So those who are you know, asleep in their sin should be awakened by Christ in his grace. Arise from the dead. Again, the sinner needs to be arisen from the dead, and that comes as a result from Christ. Christ will give you light. Or it just may refer to sleepy saints. It may refer to those that that John or Christ deals with in Revelation through the apostle John in Sardis. It's kind of like the night of the living dead. You have a name, but, but you're dead. 
There, there can be those times in the Christian life. There can be those times in the Christian church. There can be those periods in Christian history where it looks like the light is extinguished. It looks like the people of God were asleep. It looks like they weren't really alive. It looks like they were dead. So perhaps the apostle is just rousing a sleepy congregation to a more earnest participation in the light, to a more earnest walk in the light, to a more earnest desire to to expose the deeds of darkness, to bring that law to bear upon needy sinners so that they might indeed see their need for the glory of Jesus Christ. So the call to sleepers to awake is the inconsistent saint in his walk. The call to the dead to arise is the inconsistent saint in his responsibility to expose the unfruitful works of darkness. Because if we're not doing that, it's no better than being dead men and women still in that darkness. And then the reminder that it's Christ ultimately who gives light, which is a great encouragement. Christ will give you light. If you have fallen into this malaise, if you have fallen into this trap, if you have fallen into this laziness, if you have become apathetic, if you have become sort of unengaged or disengaged from the the context around you, understand that Christ is in the business of giving you light. Christ is in the business of sustaining you. Christ is in the business of encouraging you. And Christ is in the business of causing you to persevere by His grace and for His glory. Well, in conclusion, don't miss the dynamic involved in our sanctification. The relationship between the indicative, what has happened or what is true in terms of the cross, and the imperative. The cross enables compliance with the law. It's not backwards. It's not the law brings us to the cross. The cross brings us to the law in terms of justification and then sanctification as a consequence. The breach between the former self and the present self. We see that in chapter 4, verses 20 to 22. How did the old man die and how have we put on the new man? It's not because we're good people. It's because God is gracious and he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And it is because of grace through faith in Jesus Christ that we have everlasting life. And then we have the rejection of the unfruitful works of darkness and the pursuit of the fruit of the light, goodness, righteousness, and truth. Those are the things that are to characterize the people of God who have been blood-bought by Jesus Christ. And if you're not a part of the people of God tonight, the answer is not, I'm going to go be good, I'm going to go pursue righteousness, and I'm going to love truth. That's consequential. I'm not suggesting you should go out and be bad and pursue unrighteousness and hate the truth. But I am suggesting your first stop ought to be Jesus. Your first stop ought to be looking unto the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. It is that which brings everlasting life. Whoever believes in me will not perish, our Lord Jesus said. Well, let us close in a word of prayer. Our God and our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this section in Ephesians 5. And we thank you for the very practical admonitions that we find here. You don't leave it up to us to try and figure out what the light looks like, but you define it very clearly. Goodness and righteousness and truth. Help us to pursue those things and to cultivate those things. Forgive us when we sin and cleanse us afresh in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And help us, God, to glorify and to honor you. And we pray through Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen. We'll close with a brief time of meditation.